Father, we are gathered together to worship. We do bow our heads and our hearts before you. We ask that you speak to us, that you teach us, that we know we know that you are here, that you are present. We know that you, your Holy Spirit, is here in presence. We pray that you'll be here in power as well, that you will uh, illumine truth to our hearts, that you will encourage us, motivate us, correct us, and that you will guide us. And Father, we're grateful for the many ways that you work in our life. Our prayer is that you will continually conform us to the image of your Son, that you'll continually make us more like the Lord Jesus Christ through your character displayed to us, to our growing obedience and growing yieldedness to you. Father, again, be glorified in us today. We love you and we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. We're focusing our attention again back on the book of Acts, and we're really focusing on the third chapter. You will notice if you've been following along that we have been through Acts chapter 2, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the launch of the church, the the kicking off of this new relationship with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is eternal. He is a person. He was there at creation. He was there before creation. He moved throughout the Old Testament. But when Jesus ascended, he sent the Comforter, he sent the Paraclete, the Holy Spirit, and now a relationship with him is different. There was this pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Now he indwells us. He becomes the seal in the heart of the believer. Every believer is immersed, baptized, is immersed in the Holy Spirit, and we become new creations. It gave them a new commission. Now, Granted, the Jews had the commission to be light to the nations and to allow the, the nations to see what it means to be the people of God. But now with the Christians, he's saying, go. Go to the highways and hedges. Go be my witnesses. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth. Go. Tell people the good news, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you can see, as we studied, they're taking this very seriously. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit is poured out. It is accompanied by miracles. People are able to speak languages they have never studied so that people can hear the gospel in their own language. There's the miracle of the loud noise. There's the miracle of the Holy Spirit displayed in power, in, in the, uh, the picture, uh, uh, like unto flame, tongues of fire that came and that settled on the apostles. And then you have the message proclaimed. We studied Peter's message. We took a few weeks to go through that message. And then we see the results at the invitation time. They came to him. What must we do to be saved? And his response was repentance. Repentance. And then the display of that repentance through baptized. Repent and be baptized that you may be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we see the church established. 3,000 joined that first day. 3,000 became followers of Christ, and they began to devote themselves, as Scott read earlier, they began to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to fellowship, to sharing and having all things in common. And I am going to not teach today on that subsequent passage, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through the end of the chapter, because I just preached on that passage January the 22nd of this year. And I know that you guys remember every point that I made. I'm just confident that, uh, that you've already got that nailed down. But I would encourage you, you can find that message on the website. It's, it, it's what it means to have a strong fellowship, what it means to be part of the body of Christ. But we're focusing today and picking up in Acts chapter 3, and we're, our, 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 kind of our heart verses is, that we're focusing on today is the story of a miracle, verses 1 through 11. There is no better text for us to be studying in these days as we are preparing for the future that God has for us 
than the launch of the church. We are, as a church, continuing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The work He began, Luke says in Acts chapter 1. He began, it now continues through you and through me. Now we do this work in His power. We do this work dependent upon the Holy Spirit who indwells us and has been poured out upon us. And we've seen wonderful miracles, and today we pick up with a new miracle, a different miracle. Now we're going to walk through this passage, we're not going to run through this account, but we're going to walk through it and ask the Holy Spirit to teach us the things that we need to learn. And I will tell you that uh, I've really been under some personal conviction here, as I've been going through Acts chapter 1, 2, and 3 particularly. And I've entitled this kind of the next few lessons, uh, the next few sermons, and our next, our focus over the next few weeks, let's talk about Jesus. And I want to to ask you to examine yourselves as the Lord has been examining me. Because I talk a lot. I know that comes as a surprise to you. But but I'm I'm not shy about engaging people typically. I'm not shy about talking to people. I I do get to spend time with people who are believers and people we're discipling and uh, people we pray with and get to spend some time with many of you periodically throughout the week and over the course of weeks. But I also make time to go out into the neighborhood and go out into the community to meet people who are not believers. And we have other venues. The Lord has provided other ways for me to connect with people who are not believers. And I love making new friends. I love learning about people and what's going on in their life. But I have, I've become convicted that it is really easy for me to talk about baseball or for me to talk about sports or for me to talk about electronics or me to talk about computers or programs or for me to talk about the weather or gardening by the way the pictures that you see at the bottom of the screen there those are the dogwoods in the front yard of our church office over there and everything's in bloom right now it's just beautiful and I love talking to people stopped somebody on the street the other day he was walking his dogs dog's name is Ryder and Jonathan came by and we were talking about some of the um, some of the flowers he has in his yard and some and it's so easy to talk about those things But I have become convicted that I have not been intentional enough in talking about Jesus to people who don't know him. And I believe that it's more than just me. I believe that that is something that every believer needs to be challenged on, can improve on. That God wants to work on us to help us have Jesus as the topic of our conversation. I will guarantee you if you talk to Peter and John... It wouldn't be two minutes till they'd be talking about Jesus. Now, of course, he'd just been crucified uh, um, six weeks ago. Of course he had. Of course he'd been resurrected from the dead. Of course they had seen him after his resurrection. And now their message is again and again the resurrection of Christ and that Jesus is the Savior. And so this was very fresh on their minds. But as you look at their lives, they never lost that. They never lost their passion for Christ. They never lost their love for Christ. He was always... and They talked about other things. I'm not saying they didn't talk about other things. But the topic of Jesus and the person of Jesus was never far from their attention. And I believe that needs to be the case with us. So when we pick up this morning, we pick up our verse with Peter and John on their way to the temple. Now, you guys know Peter and John. They were friends. They were probably childhood friends. They were raised in the same community when they got old enough to work. They were partners in business, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 5. 
They were called to follow Christ pretty much at the same time. And they were disciples. And with John's brother James, the three of them were the inner circle. And so they spent a lot of time together. You guys remember just a little while ago when Jesus, when they went to the empty tomb and the women went first and they saw that it was empty and they came back and told the disciples who ran first to go to the tomb to see that the tomb was empty. It was Peter and John. It was Peter and John. And so these guys, they weren't strangers to one another. They were partners in ministry, which I think is an excellent lesson for us. We live this life in relationship with one another, even with all our failings. Both these guys messed up. Now, Peter, we know him as kind of brash and bold and kind of the spokesman of the group. John, I don't know if you guys are into medieval art, but have you seen like The Last Supper, Leonardo da Vinci, and some of the other medieval paintings? John's always kind of painted kind of effeminate because he's called, and he calls himself... The disciple that Jesus loved. Well, his nickname given to him by Jesus was Son of Thunder. Okay? So it's incongruent. And he was, was, again, a fisherman. Rough hands. He was... We need to get that image out of our mind. Neither one of these guys were quiet, retiring. They were both out there in their lives. They were both out there in their testimony. When, When there's preaching that needs to take place in this context, we always have the record of Peter's. Preaching, he, he tends to be the one that preaches. But they were going, Peter and John, our text, Peter and John were going to the temple. Why in the world would these Christians be going to the temple? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, does it? Well, it does. And let me explain. Was Jesus Jewish? Yes. Were his 12 disciples Jewish? Yes. Was most of his ministry to Jewish people when he was out. Remember, we had the woman who said, I, I need blessing. And he said, well, this is for the Jews. Why would we cast it out to dogs? And she said, even the dogs get to eat the crumbs from the table. And Jesus said the gospel to the Jews first and then to the Gentile. You remember all of that? Well, where was the first sermon of the launch of the church preached? It was preached in Jerusalem. When was it preached? At Passover. Who was the audience? Jews from all over the, all over the world who had come and traveled in. And so these are, at this point, matter of fact, it's Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 before we get a Roman identified by name as a believer. You remember that when the Christians were scattered and they went and started the church in Antioch in Acts chapter 13, all of a sudden all these Gentiles are becoming saved and the Jews had to adapt to that. Early in the life of the church, for people outside the church, the idea was that those Christians, those followers of the way, it was just another group, a sect, S-E-C-T, of the Jews. And that's how they were predominantly identified to start with. Well, these, these were good Jews. And so they now recognize Jesus as their Messiah. They have repented. They're following him and they're continuing to go to the temple. Scott read just a little while while ago, Acts chapter 2. What were they doing? They were devoting themselves to the teaching of the disciples. They were praying together. They were also going to the temple. And they were meeting from house to house, breaking bread, remembering the Lord's death, and and sharing life together. This was a brand new church. No building, no steeple, no gathering place. And so where would you gather if you had a big crowd? You would go to the temple where there were these massive courtyards, room for thousands of people to gather on the courtyard. And so the Christians went to the temple. Now they went to the temple at the third hour, or not the third hour, at the ninth hour. Now, their day started at 6 o'clock. The ninth hour would be 3 o'clock in the afternoon. That was one of the times that they would go to the temple and they would gather together for prayer. 
But it was also, if you're a good Jew, it was also the time of the evening sacrifice. It was time when people would bring their doves. It's time when people would bring their lambs. And so there was that ongoing ritual worship that pointed to Christ. But there were so many people there who missed the Messiah. And there was some false worship taking place. Here were believers coming bringing true worship into the temple. And so they were coming at that hour. Now, this is a pretty good setting if you're going to be asking people for money. We have a poor man, a lame man in this setting. They were going to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate. Why did they carry him there? to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, I want to give you an idea. If you are having to beg, if you're having to ask for alms, and this man had to, that was his only source of income. He was unable to work. Since he had been born, he was lame. People knew him, and every day they would take him to the gate of the temple. Why? Because there were thousands of people coming in. And there were thousands of people coming in to worship. And there were thousands of people coming in to worship under the law, and they might be feeling guilty, and they might want to be obedient to all those commands to take care of the poor, and so it would be a pretty good spot for you to be. And this man, tradition says he was about 40 years old. I don't see that clearly in the text, but tradition says he was about 40 years old, and that he had been lame from birth. And so he was asking for alms. When he saw Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter didn't just walk on by. This is not the parable of the Good Samaritan with those going to the temple, walking to the other side and walking past. Let me ask you a question. I know you guys live in Greenville. We have, we have a fairly substantial homeless population here. We have people who are not shy and who some have legitimate needs, some whose needs need to be met other ways. But we have people who ask you for money. Have any of you ever been asked for money going into the quick stop, into the grocery store, uh, in Greenland. Has that been your experience? Can, can most of you relate to that? What is the tendency? Is it to gaze upon them? No, particularly if you're not going to give anything, you don't want to call their attention to you, and you don't want to give attention to them, so you kind of look the other way, and you walk on past. Well, Peter did not in this circumstance. Peter and John did not. Peter directed his gaze at him, and as he did, oh, as did John, so both of them did, and they told him, hey, look at us. But Peter, he fixed his, and so he did, he fixed his attention upon them, and he was expecting to receive something. Now, what do you think he was expecting to receive? Offering. Need cash, need money. I have to buy food. I've got to, you know, there are, there are expenses and things that are necessary to live. This is how I, 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 I gather an income. Alms. Peter's response, I have no silver and gold. Now, how do you think he received that? Why do you, you get my attention? I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. Now, this is a miracle. This is a miracle that took place right outside of the gate to beautiful. As people were going into the temple to worship, 
Peter and John going in with them, probably to connect with other believers, see this man. There's this beautiful gate. Josephus, the historian, says that this gate was 75 feet high and 60 feet wide. That, but when they would open it for worship, it would take 20 men to open the gate and 20 men to close the gate. Its construction was made of Corinthian brass and it was adorned with massive plates of gold and silver. And it was a popular place to be. And so this man was at a good place because this is a place where people would come and give their tithes and offerings. This is a place where people would come to worship. And he got something far better than that. I think there's a lesson for us here. Uh, First of all, and if you're taking notes in your outline, this is the first point that I'd like for you to write down, just as an application point, that we need to be alert to the need that people have to know Jesus. Now, I put that in that sentence. I know it's kind of awkwardly constructed, but it's for a reason. One thing is we need to be alert. We need to keep our eyes open to see where God is working around us. We need to keep our eyes open to see what the needs are around us. One of the things that we're going to do this afternoon and that we will have further opportunities to do in the West End is to open our eyes and see who lives in the neighborhood. What are they experiencing? What do they know? Who are they? How can we meet needs? How can we develop relationships? But on the job, you need to open your eyes to your co-workers. In the neighborhood where you live, your neighbors, what's going on around them? We first of all need to open our eyes because we're called to make disciples of all nations starting where we live. And not only do we need to open our eyes, we need to open our eyes to what needs are. And there are legitimate needs. There are people who are poor. Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you. The Apostle Paul talks about how Christ humbled himself and took on poverty for our sake so that we might become rich in him, not financially rich. Far better than that, spiritually rich. And we need to help meet the physical needs of people. You guys remember James? Faith faith without works is dead. You guys remember James in the book of James? Remember what he says in James chapter 2 when he says, If a brother or a sister is poorly clothed or lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? That kind of faith he calls dead faith. Faith that is dead, not real faith at all. So are we as believers supposed to be sensitive to the physical needs of other people and meet their needs? Yeah, no, yeah, maybe. Do you remember Jesus in in Matthew chapter 25? He has gotten just gotten through with two parables and then he begins to talk about the final kingdom. And there's this story that he tells about the final judgment and sheep and goats. When God separates people into two classifications like a farmer separates his flocks. And on the one side there are the sheep and they are welcomed into the fold. And on the other side there are the goats in his example. And these are the ones who are cast out. They felt like they were good people but they weren't. What is the distinguishing difference between sheep and goats in that passage of Scripture? Do anybody remember what the distinguishing difference is in those two? There's only one in that passage of Scripture. Now, granted, get your theology from all of the New Testament, but there's only one in that passage of Scripture, and it's what they did or did not do to meet the needs of people around them. A cup of water, clothes, visiting people when they're sick, ministering to those who are in jail. Because that is the fruit of a heart 
that has been transformed, that has compassion upon people. And so we need to meet needs. We need to be sensitive to those needs. Now, there are wise ways to do that, and there are foolish ways to do that. You can enable people who need to be doing something else, who need to be have, who are experiencing the discipline of God, and you're trying to take them out of the discipline of God, or they, they need discipling rather than just provision. And so that's a whole other sermon. We'll get to that at another point in time. But we need to be alert to the needs of people. Why? What is mankind's greatest need? To know Jesus Christ, to be forgiven of sin. Pendleton Street Baptist Church was established in 1889 as a mission, constituted as a church in 1890. Had a series of pastors for the first 14 years, and then they called Dr. Benjamin Davies Hahn. He was there for almost 20 years, and then after him they called Dr. Dean Crane. I don't know if any of you remember anything about Dr. Crane and the history of the upstate of South Carolina. Some of you are old enough to know. I've read books and stories. When he first came to Pendleton Street as his pastor, his as pastor, his first sermon was a sermon entitled "The World's Greatest Need." He spent 22 years as pastor of Pendleton Street Baptist Church, and when he retired, his last sermon was the same as his first sermon. He preached that sermon again: "The World's Greatest Need." The world's greatest need is to be forgiven of sin. God's provision. For forgiveness of sin is the Lord Jesus Christ. And his statement in that sermon was the world's greatest need is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Would you agree with that? And so when you get out of balance, when you're all about physical needs and somehow you think I'm pleasing God and that's good for them and this is what God's called me to do and you don't go any further, you are incomplete. If you say my job is to proclaim the gospel and to speak the word of God and just quote verses at people and you don't see that they're thirsty or that they're hungry or that they need clothes, you are missing the opportunity to have an open ear, to create a channel to the gospel so that we can be those who proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to be alert to the need people have, the need to know Jesus. Peter gazed at him and he got his attention. He needed his needs met. He was expecting money, but he got something far greater than that. I have no silver or no gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What an unexpected miracle. This man was not saying, could you guys heal me? Remember, there were those who called out to Jesus and said, heal me. I need heal. I need to be able to see. Heal me from this issue or this disease that I, that I have. I need your healing. This man was not. He was doing what he always did. Probably unaware of God's power, certainly unaware of the power of God and of Jesus on display through these disciples. This miracle was unexpected. And the gospel is not about silver and gold, by the way. When Peter says, I have no silver and gold, kind of shoots the prosperity gospel in the foot, doesn't it? Kind of hard to say getting saved is about God meeting your needs now and, and, and satisfying your riches when here they're not even carrying money at all. He did give, though, what he had been given, the ability to heal. And he does it in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. What is the purpose of this? He is connecting this man to Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What does that mean? In his name, by his authority, by his power. When the crowd sees this, they knew this guy. They've known him for years. 
When they see this, there's a miracle that we cannot deny. The Sanhedrin says in Acts chapter 4, when they bring Peter and John in before the crowd because of the... what 5,000 people get saved at the close of this message in, 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 in the temple. Seeing this. And this is a miracle we cannot deny. It, 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 is, it is the power of God on display. It, Peter and John say, it's not us. It's not our power. It's all about Jesus. It's in His name by His authority. It's in His power. It is by His will. Now this miracle was done to point people to Jesus Christ. Verse 7, He took Him by the right hand, raised Him up, and immediately His feet and ankles were made strong. I want you to understand, they didn't sign Him up for rehab. They didn't give Him medication. They didn't say, alright, we're going to get you up and move you around, then it's going to be a wheelchair, then it's going to be crutches, then it's going to be the rollator, and then... Then you're going to start walking and then you're going to start running and you'll be doing a 5K in no time. That is not the way they went. Immediately. This was a miracle of creation. All of those muscles worked, created brand new. All of those tendons worked. All of those things that he had never been able to experience before worked. He didn't have to be taught how to walk. Probably never taken a step in his life. He didn't have to be taught how to walk. As a matter of fact, he stands up, he walks, he runs, he leaps because of this massive, sufficient miracle that takes place, this instantaneous act of creation. Listen, when we talk about Jesus, we need to talk about Jesus' power. Amen? Would you agree with me? Jesus' power, His power was on display. Now, I do need to make something clear to us about the role of miracles in the New Testament. And I want to be fairly quick here. I don't want to take too much time with this. But if you go through the Bible and you start at the very beginning, you work your way all to the end, and you count the number of times where God intervenes in the physical world that He has created, and He suspends it or He changes it by making a withered hand whole, by making a lame man rise up and walk, by stopping the sun in the sky, by turning the water to the, the river Nile to blood, by, by those sorts of things. You have... You have Less than 100 over 6,000 years history recorded in Scripture. Now, there is reference to more. These and many other signs and wonders the apostles did. These and many other signs and wonders Jesus did. And we'll look at those in just a moment, or some of those in just a moment. But you only have specifically recorded less than 100. And they're gathered in groups. They're gathered when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of the Egypt, Egyptian slavery and into the wilderness. And then there's another clustering of these around Elijah and Elisha when God was calling the kingdom back to himself. And there's some periodically spread throughout through the prophets when the prophet's word needed to be validated by a sign from God that, yes, this is my man, this is my spokesman. The next big group of miracles you have is Jesus incarnate. Remember how he went around healing? Remember how he made the blind to see and the deaf to hear and the lame to walk? Remember how he brought the dead to life? And now as he has ascended, the Holy Spirit has come down upon the disciples. The church is launched and we have the 12 apostles. You guys remember the 12 apostles? That's 12 minus 1 plus 1. And the apostle Paul, who was appointed by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles. And the launch, and it's through these and through people in this time period where God is writing the New Testament for us. And so these miracles, they were given the ability to do these miracles 
to demonstrate that they are indeed God's representative. That they are God's spokesman. It's what Nicodemus said in John chapter 3 when he went to Jesus. And he says, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher from, come from God. Why? For no man can do these miracles except God be with him. It is the testimony of God's authority. In Acts chapter 4, uh, starting in verse 29, And now, Lord, when the disciples are praying, after Peter and John have been released, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Speak your word, that's important. While you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed, Through the name of your holy servant Jesus, the apostles are praying for signs and wonders as validation that they are representatives of God and that they are speaking the true message. In Acts chapter 5, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the apostles by the um, among the people by the hands of the apostles. As a matter of fact, Acts chapter 5 tells us that people would bring their sick and lay them along the streets just hoping the apostles would walk past so that the shadows would fall upon them in the hopes that they would be healed. It's an amazing validation of these true teachers sent from God. Acts chapter 6, even Stephen, you guys will remember Stephen and his stoning. But Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people. In Acts chapter 15, when Paul and Barnabas are giving testimony, all the assembly fell silent. They listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the apostles. The apostles did miracles. The apostles and those with them, and the purpose of the miracles was not to make Christians well physically. The purpose of the miracles was to validate the messenger and the message that they were bringing. It's important that we understand this. They verified the messenger who was delivering the word of God. So what was the purpose of this miracle? By the way, Can God perform miracles today? Have I put you to sleep yet? Hey, can God perform miracles today? Absolutely. Does God heal today? Can God physically grant physical healing today? Absolutely. Does He always do it when we want Him to? Absolutely not. Because He's God. And we're not. And He knows what brings Him glory and He knows what's for our good and He knows what is eternally right to do. And we can trust Him totally and completely. Sometimes He answers our prayers with, yes, I will give you the thing that is the desire of your heart. Sometimes, through our praying, He says, I'm going to change the desire of your heart. So that you can trust Me as you walk through this. So there is no guarantee. By the way, I do not believe that you or I are gifted with the gift of healing like Peter and John were. I believe that was an apostolic gift at the beginning of the church. How do you verify the messenger and the message that you hear today? By the way, there are sermons being preached all over this city today. You guys listen to any of them? Listen to this one, I hope, but you're here. But have have you heard other preachers in Greenville? There are a lot of churches that are meeting across Greenville. And many of them are proclaiming the Word of God today, but some of them are not. And some of them are proclaiming the Word of God in error. How do you validate the messenger and the message? How do you know that what I say is true? And by the way, you ought to always check 
for yourself that what I say is what God says. Don't say Marty said. Say Marty said, God said. Now let's go see what God has to say about it. How do you verify the messenger and the message? You go to the Word of God. They did not have a written New Testament. God used them to write the New Testament. And now we have the New Testament that verifies and validates the message. So what was the purpose for this miracle? He was setting the stage to proclaim the power of Jesus to the crowd. Look what happens. This man, healed now, lame since birth, is leaping up and he stands and begins to walk. And as they went into the temple, he went into the temple with them. And he's walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. That was his sermon introduction. <laughs> How's that for a sermon introduction? That was the, the, the opportunity that drew the crowd. That was the opportunity that was the hook that said, what has happened here? We know this guy. We cannot deny this miracle. What did they have to say? And Peter begins to preach. The power that we proclaim when we proclaim the power of Christ is more than physical healing. It is the power to make people whole. It is the power to deliver people from death to life. It is the power to take people from darkness into light. To deliver people from slavery to sin and from the frustration of always seeking and never being satisfied like the woman at the well that we read about last week. And bringing them to the place of satisfaction and contentment and joy. The power that we're talking about is the power to wash you from your sin and make you whiter than snow. It's the power to remove guilt. Those things that keep you awake at night. Those things that the devil brings to your mind and you say, I wish I would have never done that. I wish there would have been some intervention. And God comes and He cleanses you and He restores you. And He says you are innocent. Not due to your own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm going to apply to your account and you're clean. You are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. He brings change to lives by bringing new life to people. That's the power we're talking about. The power to make one part of God's family and all that entails. The power that comes when He writes our name in the Lamb's book of life and it can never be erased. The power to seal us with the Holy Spirit. To seal us until His second coming. The power to give us courage to face death without fear. He takes away the fear of death. The power to face judgment, to know that we can stand before God boldly, not because of our own righteousness, but because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has done. And we put our faith and our trust in Him. We proclaim the power of Jesus Christ. The power to make you able to face God on that day and to hear Him say, Come you who are blessed by my Father, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's the power that we proclaim. Amen? Isn't that, isn't that worth talking about? Isn't He worth talking about? Or, or isn't His name worthy to be praised and to be shared? Look at the verbs in this text that relate to the lame man. This is a good way to study a text, by the way. You guys love grammar. I know you do. Keeps you on the edge of your seat. But when you go through a text, particularly a narrative text, look at the verbs. 
and see who they apply to and just follow the verbs. This man was carried and laid. This man asked. This man fixed his attention and this man expected. What happened? This man was raised and we find him walking, leaping, and praising. That's the Jesus we proclaim. The Jesus who changes lives. Leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God, and they recognized him. They knew him. He was the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him while he clung to Peter and John. I love that. He clung to Peter and John. And all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon, Solomon's Porch. Which brings us to the final point today that we're going to look at as part of this text. And folks, we ought to joyfully believe God's promises. Well, another reason this miracle of healing may have been done for the Jews was, to, was for God, through Jesus, through the apostles, to give them a taste of what's coming. Do you understand, and you do, I believe, but I hope you do, to the depth of your being, that God's promises are true? He didn't go back on His Word. His covenants are irrevocable. There's nobody who can overrule him or change his promises. And that should bring us great joy. For the Jews in Exodus 15, the children of Israel had left Egypt. They had crossed the Red Sea. And there was this great celebration that took place. Exodus 14 and then Exodus 15. Now they get out into the wilderness. And the first place they come, the water's bad. You ever had bad water? Their water was bad to the point it made them sick. It was a place called Marah. A place of bitter water. And the people complained. And I would have, you would have. They complained. Rather than calling out to God and trusting in God's provision, they were complaining against Moses. But they complained. And Moses prayed and God gave them a way to make the water sweet by cutting down the tree and throwing it in the water. The next place he took them was a place called Edom. And in Edom, there was an oasis there. There were trees, 70 shade trees. I'm always curious to me why they would identify how many trees. And then I realized there were 70 elders of Israel in place at that time. So everybody had their own spot. People had sweet water. And in Exodus chapter 15, verse 26, in the story of Marah and Edom, the Lord made for the Israelites a statute and a rule. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in His eyes, and give ear to His commandments, and keep all His statutes. What does He say? I will put none of these diseases on, on you that I put on the Egyptian, for I am the Lord your healer, Jehovah Rapha. And it's a promise that will be completed in the kingdom, and His promises to the Jews, and He has not reneged on His promises to the Jews. I want you to understand that. He is still the God of Israel. Their way of salvation is your way of salvation and my way of salvation. There's only one way of salvation. It's through the Lord Jesus Christ. But God does not revoke His promises. There's still a place for Israel. And we see here that He has identified Himself as their healer. Even in Isaiah 35. And we'll get to the sermon that Peter preached. But Peter says, you guys are sons of the prophets. You shouldn't be surprised at this sort of stuff. They've been talking about this for years and you know it. It was part of your Sunday school classes growing up. It's the scripture verses that you memorized. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame men leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. 
a taste of what is to come in the kingdom God has. This could be a promise from God that previews the coming kingdom. How does real healing take place? What is the real healing that we need, that everyone needs? It's the healing from our separation to God brought about by our own sin. We've inherited it from Adam, but it's our sins that have separated between us and our God. Healing the separation that sin brings between people and God is the promise that God made when He sent the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus. All the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him proclaimed these days, Peter told them. And when he said these days, he was talking not about the healing of the lame man. He was talking about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, who died that we might have life. Let's talk about Jesus. The King of kings is He. The Lord of lords supreme throughout eternity. The great I am, the way, the truth, the life, the door. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about Jesus more and more. We are to proclaim the person of Jesus. Who is the gospel? He did not come to show us a way. He is the way. And the truth. And the life. I do occasionally get responses from some of the messages that I preach. And particularly in the book of Acts. Because we started in Acts chapter 1 and in Acts chapter 2. And now we're in Acts chapter 3. And it's kind of like, well we sure are getting a big dose of the gospel. And a big encouragement to evangelize. Let me ask you to consider something. Why else are you here after you get saved? You're here to glorify God with your life. I'm not saying you're here to save people. Only God saves. Amen? As a matter of fact, let me ask you a question. What did this guy do for this miracle to take place in his life? Nothing. He wasn't even expected it. This experience for him was simply the unilateral movement of a sovereign God bringing about his will in the life of this man and setting the stage for this sermon in the lives of these people. Isn't that an amazing truth? But does that negate our privilege and our responsibility to proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and to make disciples of all the nations? It's why we're here. To glorify him with our lives. So I want to ask that you pray for me. And I'm going to promise to pray for you. Already have been. And I'm going to pray that Jesus becomes more and more and more the topic of our conversations because he's more and more and more the central being, the central aspect of our lives. We talk about the things we love. We talk about the things that we experience and we get to walk with Jesus every day with Jesus can be sweeter than the day before by the way God's all about joy the defining characteristic of a Christian life should be is to be joy what this guy do he ran and he leaped and he praised God genuine worship that everybody saw and bore witness to the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ Father, thank you for the privilege that we have to hear this testimony in Scripture. This testimony of this man who was miraculously healed. That validated the preaching and the message of Peter and John. And of the disciples 
and of the church as they went about making known the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that we will take the lessons that you give us or the examples that you give us at the very least in this passage and make them a reality in our heart. We want to be those who exalt you at every opportunity. We want to be those who can testify of your power in changing our own lives and sharing this information with the world who needs the same thing. Help us to see the real needs of people, the need to know Jesus. Help us to proclaim with boldness the power of Jesus to transform lives. Father, help us to be people who rejoice in the promises of God that we have experienced and the promises that we are expecting. We love you and we trust you. In your name I pray. Amen.